I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Dan McDormand on his debut novel, West Heart Kill. Dan McDorman is an Emmy-nominated TV news producer who has also worked as a newspaper reporter, book reviewer, and cabinet maker. And we're here today to talk about Dan's debut novel, which is West Heart Kill. Dan, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks for having me, Neil. First of all, Dan, would you tell us how you would describe the novel? Right, so it's a metafictional murder mystery set in the, in the 1970s at a hunting club in, in upstate New York. It has all of the the trappings of a classic Golden Age mystery. It's got loves and betrayals and scheming relatives and, and heartbreak and twists and turns and decades-long vendettas and, and surprises, all of that kind of, you know, a body count, to be sure. Uh, so all that kind of fun stuff. And then on top of it, it is uh, sort of loaded uh, with as many sort of metafictional and fourth wall breaking hijinks as I could cram into the thing. So, okay, first of all, what we'll do is we'll talk about the novel itself as if it was a straightforward murder mystery to begin with, some of the characters, etc. And then we'll get on to the sort of the deconstruction bits a little later on. But first of all, let's talk about the setup. Let's talk about, tell me about the actual, the club itself, because obviously the setting of a murder mystery novel is very important. Setting is everything, I think, for the most part. I think most, what you remember from most murder mysteries is setting and the detective. So the setting is this elite, very exclusive hunting club that has existed for decades. Uh, you have to be invited to belong. Families pass down their membership year to year, decade to decade. And so it's a very insular community, which is obviously very helpful for for a murder mystery. And the people involved have also known each other for decades. And so you'll have, there are people in their 60s and 70s who were in love as teenagers, for example. And so that, that adds a lot of rich opportunities for backstory and possible motives for murder. And so it is politically probably conservative, but it's an, at an era in the United States where all the old institutions had, were sort of falling apart and people were a little bit lost in, in a very existential way, I think. 
And it takes place over the bicentennial weekend in the, in the U.S., which was 1976, which was also a time to sort of reflect on what the hell this experiment called America was all about. And so it's it's very insular. It is tight-knit. It is secretive. And so our detective, when he arrives there, is sort of adopting the viewpoint of the reader as well, trying to figure out what all this tangled web of connections is is hiding. And our detective is Adam Mechanis. Um, just one thing before I ask you to tell us something about his character, about who he is. His name is similar enough to your own to not be a coincidence. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, so the, the surname with the, with the, the Mick there reflects a little bit of, of myself. It's also he's descended from, in America, obviously, the Irish were have a long tradition of, of being police officers especially in the big city. So, that, so there was that. I actually did not think about another element of the name until someone pointed out to me and said, oh, you know, did you did you mean to hide your first name in his name as well? And I, was, and I said, well, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, A-N-N, it's an odd construction. It's very similar to Dan. And I, you know, it's almost it was, an anagram. Yes. And so it was like in a cartoon where my eyes bulged out and like, oh, and, and, you know, mind blown kind of thing. So uh, some of that was uh, subliminal, Neil. Okay. So tell us something about who Adam is then. So Adam is a, like a lot of men of his age at that time, he was a damaged individual by, he served in Vietnam and his experiences there. Uh, left him with a lot of wounds, not all of which were are visible, although some were. And he comes from, as I alluded to, a, a line of of police detectives, but he has decided to go a different way and is a private detective, which is uh, regular cops view that as a bit of heresy and that he's sort of broken with the priesthood, so to speak. So he is, he is a little bit of a renegade. He has a, a bit of a countercultural edge even though he is some sort of pseudo authority figure investigating cases for private clients and he is inquisitive to a fault and why is he there or at least i should say when the novel starts why do we think he's there because it turns out that's not the reason but obviously we're not going to give away too much about the actual plot but why why is he coming to the club right so we'll we'll make this uh, a spoiler free podcast neil which for this book is can be a little bit difficult, but he is there as far as the reader is concerned at the beginning, because he's been invited by an old college friend up for the weekend. And that seems just a, a happy coincidence for him. Of course, the, the real truth is is deeper and a little bit more sinister. But that's that's how he maneuvered an, an invite up to the, the club at the start of the novel. I should just say that there's definitely going to be a spoiler later on, but not for this novel. So um, just just let's park that for a moment. Um, tell us something about some of the major families that have been members of this club for years, the Garmans, the Mayers, the Blakes, etc. So these are old money families. They are waspy to the nth degree. They are They view themselves as a little bit of the sort of elect of society, I think it's fair to say, but they too are falling apart in some ways like uh they are not as wealthy as they as they used to be the club itself is not as wealthy as it used to be it's fallen on hard times and the club at the start of the novel is uh beginning to sell off tracts of land for lumber concerns and they are how does one describe them they are 
they are all flawed in in many ways uh, and their money like it does to a lot of people has done them no good and so they all have reasons to love and hate each other and because they're locked into this this club that it, that is passed down to generations they they also can't escape which i i found to be a very poignant and sad but also irresistible plot device uh, as i was writing this thing you say they can't escape i mean literally they can't escape financially they and through you know generationally but also they're literally because there is a storm there is a storm i couldn't resist trapping them there and i there is a a, a summer storm coming that cuts them off from the from the outside world uh there's only two roads in and out a giant tree blocks one and the bridge across the river uh blocks the other route so they are they are quite literally trapped there which also helps my detective have exercise some influence because without that the place would just be crawling with police and that's not very fun and we also see the there's multiple generations of these families, and obviously the younger generation, each family is represented by a member of the younger generation as well, all of whom are like on the surface in some ways troubled teens or whatever, but also can look back at their parents and see they're all been to college, they're not teens, but you know what I mean, and can look back and see at the the bad behavior of their parents disapprovingly as well. Yes, there's a lot of you know, for the for the older set, it's alcohol and pills, and for the younger set, it's it's weed and and other drugs, and and so each generation is is left up to its own vices and devices, I would say. And but they, everyone knows what everyone else is doing, and there are everyone knows who is secretly sleeping with whom and why. And so the, yes, there's a lot of disapproval, but they are they are stuck there. And they they feel about each other that they are stuck with these people. You know, hell is other people. And that's what they're dealing with. And if we can just talk about a couple of other significant characters in a little more detail as well. First of all, Susan Burr. Tell us something about who she is. So Susan Burr is very important in the novel. She is a... She's in her late 40s at this time, which was a very interesting age for someone at that time period in 1976, because it essentially means that by the time the 60s started, they had already, they, they essentially missed the 60s. People of that age were often married by the time it got started. So by the time the pill was nothing for them, uh, protest movements, peace movements, they were already safely domiciled and and living sort of a 1950s life as the 60s and then the 70s progressed. So she is married to a rather despicable man, but who has a lot of money. And it that's the sort of pact she's made with herself, that she has this lifestyle, but she is stuck with, she is stuck in this loveless marriage that causes her to have a bit of a wandering eye. She's quite a sad character. And just one more then, this is Jonathan Gold, who is another significant character plot-wise. Tell us something about him. Jonathan Gold is the only other outsider uh, being introduced at the same time as Adam. He's a prospective member to the club. He is thought to have a great deal of money, which is part of the club's interest in him. He's also Jewish, and if joined, would be the first Jewish member. And that is causing a lot of tensions just barely below the surface as he's at the club and speaking with his potentially future uh, colleagues. 
In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Dan McDorman, and we're talking about his novel West Hart Kill. And Dan, as I said in the second half, we're going to talk more about the the meta novel elements, the sort of deconstruction of the concept of the of the murder novel that happens in the book. So tell us first of all just where that idea came from to do that. So my intention was to to at the start was actually just to to write a straightforward mystery and I failed at that almost immediately with the first paragraph and and as it turned out I was happy I did. So the novel breaks the fourth wall it addresses the reader and involves the reader quite directly from the very beginning. It uses throughout big chunks of the novel the second person perspective the you uh which is a little bit unusual in novels in general, but very unusual in mysteries. And so it addresses the reader. It comments on the the novel, comments on itself as it's unfolding. It assumes, I think rightly, that the that whoever is reading this mystery has probably read dozens, if not hundreds of mysteries before. So, and that's part of why I got into it uh, in this way, because your average murder mystery has knows all the tricks knows all the the red herrings, knows all the ways that mystery writers try to hide the truth from them and string them along. So as I was writing this thing, I was I just thought, well, I, I better acknowledge that up front and be straight with the reader and call attention to things I'm doing as I'm doing it. So if I did my job right in the novel, it's a be a little bit like watching a magician perform a trick as he explains how he's doing it. And how do writers do that then? There's a point in the book where you talk about the rules of murder mysteries, rules 
and different writers have different rules or different numbers of rules. But the key thing here is to, there's a feeling that a reader who reads a lot of these types of novels, as you just said, will feel let down, will get to the point and notice where they have been cheated by the writer. So what are some of the rules? Everyone has different, and, and I have. I should note also, the, the book is filled with references to other mysteries, other writers, uh, sometimes in the text, sometimes in the form of breakout essays. So there's there's a breakout sort of essay about the rules of mystery genre per se. And of course, the key thing about the rules of mystery is that no one can agree on what they are. And everyone from T.S. Eliot to Borges, uh, Toronto Knox and others have different rules. So I explore that a little bit. My The main rule that I tried to follow was to to play fair with the reader and not concoct something that wasn't you know, concoct a clue or a solution that wasn't honestly available to the reader. The reader, any mystery that that is not a fraud, the reader should be able, through the clues presented in the novel, to guess at the solution. Uh, so that's that was the sort of my baseline philosophy that I that I stuck to. But it's there's a lot there's a lot of disagreement, and you know, the great writers Agatha Christie and others broke any rule they wanted to, and God bless them for it. And as well as directly addressing the reader in the novel in terms of presuming that this reader is somebody that is familiar with the genre and very well steeped in the rules of the genre, you're also confronting the the reader with just the very idea of their appetite for reading about murders, for the consumption of, of entertainments that are based around murders. And I guess, you know, there's none more so like this than um, true crime, which is, you know, I mean, it's been a it's been a thing for years and years and years, but it just seems completely omnipresent now. There's a new true crime podcast every other day. So tell us something about this, about just thinking about the very ethics of the genre itself in addressing the readers. Yeah, and this was something that I honestly just was grappling with as I was I was writing it. There was something, and this is going to sound ridiculous, Neil, but I I worried about working so hard to create these characters that had humanity and that seemed to have a, a reality off the page and then doing terrible things to them <laughs> and that it seemed immoral somehow. And why so work so hard to, to bring them to life just so I can kill them for someone else's entertainment. And I know obviously they're just characters, but still there was something there. So I was grappling with that in the novel and it's something that isn't, that relates to the larger issue you raised of there is something a little bit uh, grim a little bit about reading murder for entertainment and making it as cozy as possible. Uh, or at the other end, having some sort of gruesome true crime serial killer thing that you that people sort of lip smackingly relish each time a new episode comes out. And there's good reasons for it. There's the Greeks had catharsis and, and there's a reason why we we laugh at horror movies when we're scared it releases emotion so i get it but it's it's still worth exploring and thinking about as you try to figure out who killed who and obviously these are although you said you felt bad about it these are fictional characters but i mentioned there is you know such a thing as as true crime as entertainment and obviously you've worked as a as a news reporter and you work as a you know a tv producer in news as well so to what extent did that experience influence how you approach this novel the honest answer is is not a ton the two worlds are so different that there wasn't much overlap sort of my waking life and my my dream life were were pretty separate it did one thing you know for 20 years i've banged out tv scripts 
at a rapid pace every day. So the one thing I guess it did give me was a, a sense that I can, you know, I didn't have as much of a self-censor as I was doing it, as I think a lot of writers do, or as I had when I was younger and, and tried to be a writer. So, so that helped. You can just get something on the page, and more often than not, you look at, back at it the next day, and you're pretty happy with it. But there was there was probably something subconscious about, in my day-to-day, I deal with a lot of gruesome gruesome imagery and, and gruesome news about safely retreating into a space where you know no real person actually got hurt. And tell us more then about how the writing process i mean how did that you know you just talked about banging out scripts and stuff and how that helped you just get stuff down on the page but in terms of how the book came together in its format and its structure and the plot itself you know tell us something more about the writing process yeah so i started as it was i didn't have a clue i I, the origin story of the book is that one day i just wrote uh just for fun i wrote the dust jacket copy to an imaginary novel and it's the novel that became west heart kill and it it had some, you know, it promised plot twists and all this sort of thing. And I hadn't invented any of that yet. So some of it, I was just trying to <laughs> write a story that matched this cockamamie jacket copy I'd written. But it got, like I said, it, it, it went off the rails in terms of, of my desire of wanting to write a straightforward mystery when I stumbled into the voice and this you and addressing the reader. And then all the other stuff got in when I was... I've been a fan all of my life of, of mystery fiction, but I, I I wasn't sure I was qualified to actually write one. So I started doing a ton of research as well as I was writing it. And I found the stuff I was learning just absolutely fascinating. And then at some point, I had the idea, well, maybe readers would find it fascinating too. And I'll start incorporating all this stuff into the novel, into the, into the story. And so that's how that's how the, the form and the structure of the novel took uh, you know, started to take shape. And it became this very virtuous cycle where I would write an essay that about the locked room or something, and it would foreshadow something that would happen in the novel 100 pages later. Or I would have a bit later in the novel explaining, you know, something, the dying message, which is a common trope in mystery fiction that helped explain something that happened, you know, 100 pages earlier. So it became very exciting in that way. And each thing fed off the other. And at this point, things were going so, it was so odd and weird, frankly, that I felt like I could do, I could just start incorporating other literary forms in there. So without giving too much away, there, there's a questionnaire, there are word problems, uh, there's all sorts of fun stuff, fun puzzles in there for the reader. I wanted to talk about a couple of other sort of tropes of these sort of books that you talk about. And you just mentioned one there, the lock room mystery of which there is both a an essay and an example in this story. So just tell us something more about what the lock room mystery is. A locked room mystery in, in its strictest definition is a body is found in a room, all the windows and doors are locked from the inside. And the the question obviously is who killed the victim? I will confess that I as a general rule, even though I have a version of this in, in West Heart Kill, I, I don't find locked rooms very satisfying because it takes such preposterous uh, ingenuity to devise, usually to devise the solution that it's at their worst, they sort of insult the reader. At their best, they're just sort of unlikely and unsatisfying. And I give some examples in the book, but it's when someone is found dead of a of an invisible gunshot wound, and the solution turns out to be that they were shot at with a bullet 
made of ice, which then melted inside their body, not leaving a trace. I mean, it's very clever. Uh, and that's not the the locked room in Westar Kill, by the way. But that's very clever. It's very fun. But a little of that goes a long way. So that's the locked room, uh, which is, like I said, it's the most common trope, I would say, and maybe the most famous. But it's, I think, for most mystery novels, it's best left, uh, you know, on the shelf. And the other one was the um, the idea of the guilty detective, which you, you take all the way back to, to Oedipus Rex. And, and this is, I mean, we're talking here about a detective that is unknowingly, you know, doesn't know that he's the person that killed his own father, for instance, there in that story. That's a little spoiler. But um, the, the one I was actually talking about earlier, of course, is um, the murder of Roger Ackroyd, possibly the most famous um, unreliable first person narrator story as well but yeah just this idea of both that i guess both the guilty detective and the unreliable narrator yes and and it was useful because i think you should the reader should always suspect the detective i think uh so it's useful to introduce that idea but yeah it goes back thousands of years to sophocles and there have been examples of it it's it's a little tricky to pull off which is why it's fairly rare like you said agatha christie actually does it twice I won't say in which books, but, you know, you go back and, and look at in the text to see, like, aha, so it happened between this paragraph and that paragraph, which is a common thing when people read that particular book. But it's it's useful because it keeps the reader on edge and they never know what exactly is happening. I, I still think that you need to play fair. I think Agatha Christie did when she pulled this off, but it's... It, it also has some, you know, somewhat uh, preposterous things. There have been sleepwalking instances of this as well, which I describe in the book. And to finish it off then, can I get you to read us a bit? Sure thing. Um, probably the best bit to read is just a, a page or two from the beginning, which I think will give a sense of the novel weirdness without <laughs> without giving anything away. So this is just the opening passages of the book, if that's okay with you, Neil. Thursday. The book takes place over the course of four days. It's a long weekend. This murder mystery, like all murder mysteries, begins with the evocation of what the reader understands to be its atmosphere, the accumulation of small curated details to create a shared myth of mood, time, and place. Though not all at once, of course, that is important. The writer of murder, like all writers, must be a miser, conceding revelations bit by bit, for every novel is a puzzle and every reader a sleuth. Not all mysteries begin with the protagonist, but this one does. He's riding the passenger seat of a car. These opening sentences don't reveal the year, model, and make. That would be too simple. But you do see the protagonist pushing a track in the dashboard. Wings at the speed of sound. Music bounces out. Let him in. The protagonist is smoking something, a joint. Passing it back to a new character, the driver, whose presence was implied at the start of the paragraph, but never explicitly stated. The two men, yes, both men, are dressed similarly in clothes of an era that is not your own, but that you've recognized from film and television. The clues accumulate. And now a crucial moment, the first bit of dialogue. What do they hunt at this hunting club? Deer mostly, pheasant, a bear once in a while. People? Only each other. They laugh, but you are thrilled. You think perhaps of the plot of the most dangerous game in which a rich eccentric lures unsuspecting men to his island to hunt for sport. Is this to be that kind of story? But listen, they are speaking again. My family is one of the poorest here. We're really only allowed to say because we are originals, founding members. How many families? Maybe three dozen? More? They all have their own cabins all over the property. Every few years, a member leaves, a new one is added. The dues are steep. And what does all that money get you? 
hunting grounds, a lock staked with fish and canoes, the clubhouse, meals prepared for big parties, like this one. Yes, fireworks on the 4th of July, also Memorial Day, Labor Day, New Year's, any excuse really to drink too much and ogle other people's wives. There are less expensive ways to have an affair. Well, these people have money to burn, or did. What they're really paying for is separation, privacy, miles and miles of empty trails, graves in which to bury their secrets. So will you get any reaction for inviting a bum like me? No, they'll view you as a new toy, something to toss from one paw to another and then be condescending about it later over drinks. Sounds wonderful. It's worth it just to get out of the city. It's falling apart. and too goddamn hot right now. You said you didn't have any work anyway. I did get one case. What is it? Nothing interesting. Not, not in the city. Fine, don't tell me. Anyway, I think the women will like you. The joint has burned down to the roach. A state police cruiser passes, and both men's eyes dart warily to the rearview mirror. Shit, did he see them? Is he going to turn around? Lights and siren blaring. And it's only now that the dialogue's clues begin to click into place. You're convinced, though nothing thus far indicates one way or another, that the protagonist is the stranger who's been invited up for the weekend, and that the driver is the one dropping all those artfully foreshadowed details about the hunting club. You now know the date, perhaps a decade too, the socioeconomic status of his hunting club, and perhaps something about the moral character of its members. These insinuations of sex don't disturb you. You're no prude. Though it's not exactly what you're looking for from a mystery. In fact, you're hoping this is not one of those books where the author embroiders or obscures the story with sex or violence or gimmickry. The real writers, the one you trust and return to again and again, have no need of such cheap deceits. So I've been talking to Dan McDormand. We've been talking about his novel West Hot Kill which is out now here in the UK from Raven Books. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to share it with me. Of course. And thank you so much for taking the time, Neil. It's been a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.